welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. This episode is sponsored by Ideonomics. Ideonomics is a global company that facilitates the adoption of commercial electric vehicles and supports next generation financial services and fintech products. Their electric vehicle division, Mobile Energy Global, provides group purchasing discounts on commercial electric vehicles, EV batteries and electricity, as well as financing and charging solutions. Ideonomics Capital provides fintech services that include intelligent and innovative solutions powered by AI and blockchain. Together, these divisions provide global customers and partners with more efficient solutions for a greener economy. To learn more, visit ideonomics.com. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, Director and CEO of Clean Technica. And here with us today are Michael Mascalier, CEO of Wave, an EV wireless charging company, and Alf Poor, CEO of Ideonomics. Uh, to start off, Michael, um, could you just give us a little bit of an overview of who Wave is, uh, when you got started, why you got started, um, and, and how that's evolved f- from, from then until now? Sure. So what Wave does is develops wireless, high-power, hands-free, in-route and depot electric vehicle charging systems for commercial vehicles, industries such as mass transit, freight, ports, mining, so moving people and goods around. And unlike some of the legacy plug-in and overhead charging systems, which require time-consuming, hands-on, manual, repetitive charging, take up space, inhibit traffic flow, Wave uses ruggedized charging pads embedded directly in the pavement. Vehicles charge quickly, high power during regularly scheduled stops or intelligently in the depot overnight. And the beauty of it is no human intervention is required. So eliminates the need to directly handle high DC voltages. No moving parts means the system is very reliable. Cool, and when did you um, get started and what sort of inspired you at that time? Well, there's always some curiosity involved, but founded in 2011. And I think the inspiration was recognizing that EV was going to come and it was going to be real, although it was fairly early at the time. And that people are maybe just basically lazy. And if you can transfer power in a wireless fashion instead of having to plug it in, make it ease, it's going to drive adoption. Yeah, I've I've given presentations all over the world, uh, India, Curacao, Europe, Abu Dhabi, and uh, whenever I have done that, I've tried to stick, take a step back from my normal day to day news coverage and think what's the underlying messages I should be giving people, and uh, I focus on in so many presentations that. EVs were the future because of fun and convenience. They'd be more fun, more convenient, and that you know, many technologies have been, you know, dr- driven from an idea to mass market initially because of f- benefits of fun and convenience. And the charging aspect, uh, there's a convenient. It's already pretty convenient to be able to charge at home, but the wireless charging, 
makes it's it's just a huge step forward. So I've always thought that's a that's a big plus for it, but there's always also always been a kind of um, debate around the usefulness of that. Can you speak a little bit how you've seen the view of the convenience of, of wireless charging changed since 2011? Like, have you seen uh, the importance of that grow from people you talk to or, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's grown significantly. Most people, even as recently as a year or two ago, didn't even realize that you could charge wirelessly. There are people I talked to this week, told them about how much power we throw through the air and they just can't believe it's actually possible. And what's made people aware, to be honest, is the uh, ubiquitous nature now of wireless charger for mobile devices. But up until then, people didn't really even understand that it was possible. So going to yeah, high power has been a challenge, but it's it's real. Yeah, that's really funny. I was thinking about that earlier, the, the, how you know the wireless charging for phones must totally change um, market perceptions, consumer perceptions around, around this capability. Yeah, just to add one quick comment to that. So you talked about, you know, is it convenient and fun? So the other piece I would add to that is, sure, you've been in plenty of EVs and they're, they're fast. So it adds a, an enjoyment factor to it. And then I start to think about things like the air we breathe and all the noise that's out there. So EVs quiet both of those down and so do we, right? So no moving parts, start to eliminate and get us into a quiet world with better air to breathe is the way I like to think about it. Yeah. That's sort of a given <laughs> with clean technical. We, you know, sometimes don't mention it enough because it's, it's a core part of why we, why we exist, but um, yeah, it's also another critical topic to highlight. Yeah. And I was going <laughs> to, I was saying I was going to use a kind of format where I play the, the slightly uninformed um, interviewer, uh, but you've already jumped the gun on, the, on the first topic I was going to ask about. But basically, you know, historically, there's been a lot of uh, concern that wireless charging couldn't be very powerful. It has sort of uh, relatively low power limits for charging. Uh, maybe you could speak a little bit, a little bit more about the power uh, capacities that you you have capable how you got there how and sort of you know sort of the story behind uh i guess the past five years of of probably expanding your your vision of what you could do yeah it really became something that was market driven so when we first produced this to be honest nobody thought that wireless power was actually possible and of course nobody thought that it was possible at high power levels so we first commercialized on what I'd almost call a, a toy bus, a 25-foot bus at 25 kilowatts. And it was able to make a couple of laps on a university. And it was interesting because you had a bunch of engineers there literally controlling the charger on a big screen and we were moving people around. So it wasn't automated at the time. And then we said, hey, looks like currently today, an electric bus can make it maybe 100 miles, maybe 150, something like that, but it wasn't sufficient to meet the sweet spot. So we developed a commercial 50 kilowatt charger, deployed it in six different locations, and we're able to show in multiple locations that it actually doubled the range of the bus. So rather than having to stop halfway through a shift, we could actually run the entire shift. And then what we said is, this is great, but did further analysis and said, hey, for transit applications where they stop 
five to 15 minutes per every hour at a transit hub, 200 to 250 kilowatts is the sweet spot. So that's, that's kind of how we arrived at the high power level. What were you at before that? You said, what were you doing? 50 kilowatts. 50 kilowatts. Yeah. And I mean, that sort of yeah. matches, I mean, that's a little bit going with the overall EV industry because, you know, for a long time, 50 kilowatts was fast charging, the fastest fast charging other than Tesla supercharging. Um, and it, it was, it took several years of the, the industry sort of growing and evolving for, uh, ultra fast or super fast charging to become sort of, uh, an expected thing for wired charging. So did the wireless charging, um, increases sort of go at the same time or have they trailed the broader, um, increase in EV charging capacities? Yeah, it's another great question. So I think where we started, we trailed where wired chargers were. And in particular, some of the overhead catenary-based systems that have mechanical movements. So when we were at 50, they were already approaching 200 to 250 kilowatts in overhead. And when we were doing 50 kilowatt charger, you started to already see some of the DC fast chargers that are up at 150 kilowatts. But we looked at the market and said, hey, everybody's impatient. And we want to have the minimal disruption on operational uh, frequency, if you will. In other words, the time required to charge. So he said, I think people are going to want higher and higher power, right? So if we can do 250 kilowatts today and they charge for five minutes, go to 500 kilowatts, cuts that in half, go to a megawatt, cuts that in half again. And I think that starts to feed the the need for people to minimize the disruption to their daily operational activities. Yeah. And so, I mean, 250 kilowatts is considered uh, ultra fast charging 500 kilowatts. It's like breaking the boundaries, breaking, (laughs) breaking through the ceiling uh, for normal EVs. And then you're talking about one megawatt, which is uh, I, I think I've only ever heard uh, Elon Musk and Tesla talk about this for semi trucks. Um, I'm not, don't recall if we've, if we've, anyone else has talked about it. So, so one megawatt wireless charging is sort of mind blowing. Um, I, I guess, I guess going back a little bit, could you explain how you, how that evolved, how you were able to technolo- technologically go from uh, those much smaller numbers to 250 and then 500 and one megawatt? Sure. So, At 250 kilowatts, we know that we're commercially deployed in transit applications, and that appears to be sufficient. So how did we get there? Well, hire a bunch of bright people that are motivated and creative, so a great engineering team, and look at some of the the technical geeky things like what does the electromagnetic field distribution look like between the plates and try to optimize that. So use a combination of really bright people, some simulation tools, good test capabilities, and also looked at the market and said, hey, if we really want to get into the truck space, so the 500 kilowatt is targeted at a class eight drayage truck that's going to move containers from the port of LA to the Inland Empire in California, did some modeling and said, hey, if we put a certain size battery on there, we need to go to about 500 kilowatts and it'll enable four trips a day. So it's kind of market pull that said, hey, we need a higher power charge because we yeah. want to make four trips a day. But just like te- technologically, like you said earlier, um, uh, that there was a lot of 
for the most part, people said it wasn't possible to do fast wireless charging uh, several years ago, five, five, six years ago, even, I think. Um, so was it something when you guys looked at it, you said, well, this, this is where we need to be, but we're not sure if it's possible or, or from the beginning, could you say, well, well, it's, it's possible. You just have to figure out how, um, I don't know if, <laughs> if you're, there's a bit of a small distinction there, but it's like, was it something that was like, well, you know, let's see if we can, you know, break the laws of, you know, not the laws of physics, but what people think are the laws of physics, or was it like, well, this is definitely possible. We just have to navigate the, the technology, technology step-by-step. Yeah, it's probably more the latter. We, going into it, of course, had some degree of skepticism about whether or not it was possible. Uh, but as we dug into it further, we said, hey, if we can figure out how to increase the, the power density between the plates and get to 500 kilowatts. So able to meet that challenge. But certainly there was nobody up front that said, hey, this is just a, a simple transition going from 250 to 500 kilowatts. And one other topic that's, I would say, the other top um, point of skepticism for many over the years or ongoing debate is uh, concern that wireless charging is not as efficient as charging with a cable. Can you talk a little bit about the efficiency side of things and um, how that compares to, to charging with a cable? Sure. Yeah, that's probably one of the most frequent questions that we get about comparing wireless to plug-in because the conception is right every we all plug in devices today and we have for all of our lives and the perception is that i plug it into the wall and there's no loss but there's a bunch of components between what comes off the grid and what actually gets the device so it's a common misconception we started at efficiencies that are maybe in the range of 85 percent many many years ago now we're north of 90 percent there are publications out there showing that some plug-in chargers are even less efficient than that. Uh, we've done some of our own measurements. So at this point, we can say we're, we're definitely as efficient, and we even have some tricks up our sleeve to get to higher numbers into the mid-90s. So it's a common myth that's out there, um, but I think we're showing with commercial deployments that it's real and we can get high efficiency numbers. Yeah, that's, that was my reading on it. It seemed like some years ago that seemed like a real concern. Um, and now it's uh, it's gotten very comparable, it looks like. so. Uh, yeah, can I, can I just add a, add a point there as well? I mean, Zach, you know I like to play with the tech in the sector. Um, I can tell you that uh, you know, when, you, when you pull over these charging pads and you align the pads underneath the vehicle with the charging unit, um, the power transmission starts in about three seconds. Um, you and I know if you're out in the field what it takes to get connected to an independent network charging apparatus to plug your vehicle in. You're looking at a litany of apps, first of all, finding out which app off of, off of your, you know, your, your aggregator app tells you who you're using, connecting to it, authenticating for payment, plugging it in. You've lost five or six minutes immediately. So not only is it a myth buster, um, you know, once you align with the, the vehicle, with the charging unit underneath it, it's, it's about three to five seconds before the charging starts. And that's way ahead of what any plug-in can give you right now. Yeah, I was yep. just about to rope you in, Alf, uh, Alf Porcy of iDynamics, because before the episode, you brought up a topic which I absolutely love, but I somehow didn't think about for this podcast, which is the um, the potential of, of combining wireless 
EV charging with autonomous vehicles. And uh, I guess before that step, you know, you're making a good point, which is we think about perhaps energy efficiency, but there's a time efficiency component of charging that even if it's pretty negligible in the, you know, it's not like it's a real problem to charge, but if you are saving, uh, especially if you have a high, high use situation, you're saving, uh, you know, 30 minutes a week or an hour a week uh, that adds up. Uh, so, but, but yeah, speak a little bit about that more. And, and then about the, the topic you brought up earlier, which is, uh, if you want autonomous vehicles, you probably want wireless charging, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a couple, couple of reasons why we, why we, um, you know, we made the move to go and talk to Mike and his team about, about joining, you know, Ideonomics, um, uh, efforts in the EV industry uh, was really in talking to the folks that we're targeting, which is the commercial vehicle operators. Uh, a couple of things came up. Uh, one, they're very, very excited around the future of autonomous vehicles. And um, as you speak to them, you know, they're all concerned that without wireless charging, there's this gig economy where you drive up and, you know, an autonomous vehicle, obviously, you know, unless it's got something, you know, that Johnny Ive would never create, which is some kind of weird mechanical arm coming out the back to plug itself in. Right? you, you, you know, you've, you've got a situation where you're going to need to start a gig economy and have somebody do the equipment to pump in the gas for you, which is plugging it in. Um, the second part, which, which maybe Mike can talk about a bit more, is um, a lot of the, the transit authorities and, and, and even some of, the, um, some of the freight operators that we're talking to, or, or in Mike's case, he's got live deployments with, um, they still have unionized workers. There are situations out there where a bus driver is not allowed to put the energy in his vehicle, and there is a unionized worker that is responsible for currently putting the compressed natural gas or diesel into the bus, and in the future, the union won't allow the driver to plug that vehicle in either. So this is a very elegant solution where there is no additional labor element needed and therefore a cost saving if you can just drive up to a wireless charging unit. So those are just a couple of the things, you know, that we were in discussions with freight operators and transit authorities about around some of the challenges with the current cable infrastructure, not to speak of the fact that cables are a trip and fall health and safety hazard as well. So the wireless, the wireless is really rounding out a bunch of problems when you work on the commercial scale that otherwise you wouldn't see when you're, when you're dealing with passenger car charging. And if you have anything further to add there, Mike. Uh, yeah, I do. I like to tell stories. So I've, I've now spent a lot of time officially at many of the terminal operators and get to walk around. And it's quite a fascinating place. But one of my favorites is the guy who was driving me around as we were talking about why go wireless versus plug-in. He said, well, basically, if there's anything that's above ground on the port, somebody's going to knock it over. So he said, the only solution is wireless where you put a plate in the ground. So found that pretty interesting. And of course, he drove me by some of these six foot high ballers and showed me that they had indeed run into these things and they were at 45 degree angle. So it's the only option in that kind of environment. Uh, I, I love what you highlighted, which was, you know, at a commercial scale, at a fleet scale, things change a lot. So whereas, you know, you and I drive an electric vehicle and we charge at a charging station and, and you know, the, the cable's not an issue. The station's not a big issue. It's when you have like, you know, a hundred drivers and uh, a bunch of electric vehicles and a bunch of charging needs. Um, you have a mu much more, uh, much bigger issue. For example, if a charger is not working and the driver doesn't realize it when plugging in uh, and then walks away and the next driver comes up and it wasn't charged or, um, 
the all the cables you know when you have a a, a picture of fleet a fleet of evs charging uh for an article it looks clean and nice but in reality i'm sure they get very can be very messy and dangerous and people can trip on them or you know other other hazards so the wireless charging and, and as we've talked about before you know I've, I've operated a tesla shuttle service city to city shuttle service and these kind of factors actually get very big very quickly uh charging needs so the wireless charging just to me it seems like it has to be the future of any fleet or i mean it doesn't have to have to be but it seems like the most logical future of any fleet or uh you know high high volume electric vehicle driving needs uh you already told a story about it mike but could i I don't know could you or alf say a little bit more about what you've found in this regard and what you found from from fleet managers and transit operators and whatnot uh talking talking to them about it yeah sure i can add a few points to that yeah so if you think about a transit operation maybe to paint a picture you've got a bunch of buses coming into a transit hub Uh, alf talked a little bit about the time that we can ramp up to a full charge and down. But if you compare that to the time and the number of people it would take to station at a transit hub to be able to do that, you're talking about if I've got a five-minute charge and it takes maybe six minutes to do a plug-in and unplug operation, your effective time to be able to put energy into the battery goes down to, to next to zero. So it's a it's a huge consideration. The other thing is, If you think about it from a, let's call it effective use of real estate. So some of the places we've deployed, they've got plenty of space, but others are in dense urban populations and they've got these depots distributed throughout a city. And it's a huge concern how efficient we are in utilizing the space. In addition to that, they have to transition with that same space from where they're at today with diesel or CNG. So we solve that two ways by giving them more efficient use of the real estate, right? Because we can pack a bunch of these plates into a more dense area or more densely populated. In addition to that, uh, our design is such that we can move them around pretty easily. So. Cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it just seems logical. <laughs> uh, Alf, uh, could you yeah, speak a little bit more what what you saw in WAVE that led iDynamics to, to make this acquisition? Um, I know you look at a lot of companies and you have a very broad view of the EV ecosystem, which I always find fascinating. And you somehow find really amazing companies and stories that even are often off my radar, which uh, impresses me a great deal. Yeah. So <laughs> could you speak a little bit more about this one? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a few things you're, you're interested in when, you, uh, when you're looking for acquisitions. First of all, are your, is your target audience uh, working with that company? So we began speaking to freight operating companies, to transit authorities, um, at the, at even talking to their planning people. And, and you know, a common, common uh, name that kept coming up was obviously Wave. Uh, Wave's currently the market leader um, in terms of deployments. Uh, it's got some interesting relationships uh, with government agencies and others around developing that high power capacity even further in the future. Um, it's got some patents. And and it's got a it's got a you know a burgeoning pipeline that that you know marrying it with a public company like us could could give them acceleration in their capital needs to help them move their business forward. So, you know, some of it's my my tech interest, some of it's my public company shareholder value interest, um, and and you know when you 
very similar to what we saw in our conversations with Steve Heckeroff at SelectTrack. You're looking for those sound bites when you're looking to buy a company that are the, the direct connection between the need and the, and the technology. Um, and so obviously, you know, when, when we, you heard a couple of sound bites from, from Mike a few moments ago, um, when you talk to folks like operating ports and things like that, you know, you know we're active in China in port areas and mining areas as well. Um, the needs are exactly the same. They translate 100% from, from the Far East to back over to the Western world. And so we saw that they were addressing needs that we've already seen being addressed in the market in Asia. And, and we know that, uh, you know, we have something of a crystal ball. We can probably see 12 to 18 months further out in the EV industry because of what has developed with our partners and, and customers in China. Um, and that's what made us uh, go and talk to Mike and the team at Way. Yeah, that seems a little bit illegal or something to get a crystal ball. But that's uh, <laughs> very, very, it's a very good point. No, it's, um, uh, and, and Michael, you, you know, you speak about how, hands-free high power wireless charging eliminates uh battery range limitations um I, I, there's always this kind of this kind of discussion of do you need more more battery or or faster charging uh can you say a little bit more about um how you see the wireless charging your wireless charging solutions addressing battery um limitations and concerns um yeah, of course. So as everybody knows that's considered an EV or anybody that's looked at purchasing electric buses and trucks, one of the biggest concern is the range, right? So that's directly correlated to the battery capacity. Uh, but then the, the second piece of that is really the power level at which you can deliver additional charge in the time available, right? So, you know, you look at the battery piece of it first, and as we all know, there's a lot of talk about their saying that the cost of lithium ion based batteries are, are coming down, production capacity is going up, cost is decreasing, of course, but I'm sure you're familiar with the term C-rate, which basically says when you go to higher power, you need a more capable battery. And of course, those are lagging a little bit in the, the, on the cost reduction curve, right? So think of it as the heat generated, say when you plug in your mobile device or your laptop, have it sitting there, you can feel the heat when you're charging or discharging. And of course, as we all know, just like any other device, heat is the enemy, so to speak. So batteries like to stay kind of comfortable, just like we as humans do. So at higher power levels, you need a higher C rate. And in order to do that uh, and reduce the time, you can imagine comparing that to plug-in chargers, right? So let's say we're at 250 to 500 kilowatts, you need two, three, maybe four plug-in chargers to do that. So you can imagine the time it would take for a person to plug in and unplug all those versus the few seconds that we can ramp to full power. So that's really probably the distinguishing factor. So yeah, more power, shorter time. Yeah, and, and I've, I've been sort of calling this year the, the year of the battery because um, we've seen a tremendous market growth in China and even more so in Europe last year going above 10% plug-in vehicle market share of the overall market. Um, and there's a lot of hope about the coming five to 10 years, uh, but there's also a lot of concern about the, limita the basic resource limit limitation of the minerals needed for batteries. So I've been speaking with a lot of battery experts, uh, mining and processing and market experts. And um, it's pretty much across the board, you know, you can't, we have serious limitations in the next, five to 10 years 
um, that will prevent you know us from getting anywhere close to 100% EV market share by 2030. Uh, but the flip side of that is, you know, if we can do more with with less battery, we can get a lot further. So, is this something in, you've talked with clients about or others in the market about? Have you had a kind of uh, deep look at? at this matter about how much you can expand the EV market pie by enabling, you know, small, less battery uh, need? Um, or is it something that just, you know, you're, you're in this space, you're doing EV charging, wireless EV charging, it's what you do, but you don't necessarily have those conversations. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And actually we've been having those conversations since the company started. So the thought was, if you have a low power charger, say at 50 kilowatts, you can do range extension and you can achieve, let's just call it 200 miles versus 100 miles. But of course, you recognize the need to go to high power. I've had that discussion from the beginning with fleet operators, transit operators, battery companies, and said, the cool part about this is if you go to higher power, you can also reduce the size of the battery that you carry around the bus and therefore reduce the capex of the vehicle itself. And secondary to that, you reduce the weight of the bus, make it more efficient and carry more passengers or freight. So it's an ongoing discussion. We always recognize the need to go to higher power and that's what we're making reality today. Yeah. And, 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 go ahead. So I was, I was going to add on to that. I mean, we've been in discussions with, uh, you know, CATL, who's kind of emerging as the behemoth in EV batteries. Um, they've got an active battery buyback program now in China. Uh, they recognize the ability to recycle those batteries because most of the fuel cells are still intact, um, you know, is, uh, is, a, is a way to ensure they can keep their production levels up as well as, you know, trying to find new, new, uh, new areas of natural resources. But very good point you raised, Zach. It's, it's, it's a complicated one with anything. Um, but, uh, but obviously, we expect the industry to continue to, to ramp up its capacity and the cost of batteries to come down as we're seeing your year over year. I think that'll continue through the next three to five years as well. Yeah, for sure. I was a couple of days ago, I was interviewing a uh, CEO of a startup that's focused on finding cobalt and nickel and other minerals in a quicker, more um, Silicon Valley kind of way. And, uh, and I dug in really deeply to try to get, get an answer to this. And I mean, they, they see 30% market share by 2030, um, and that's, you know, that's like a 10% ramp in, I mean, that's, I mean, the 10 times, that's like 10 times more, um, than, you know, what we've been at. So it's like, it's, it's an enormous growth, what we're going to see, no matter what, um, the question is how much further you could get with, you know, less, uh, resource demand. I'll ask, uh, Michael, can you, um, can you give, uh, any more kind of insight into, some of the specific problems that your technology has solved for uh, for your your initial customers who's using the, the technology today? Yeah, so I think the best story we have is the one at ABTA, Antelope Valley Transit Authority, which is where our largest deployment is. So it's 15 of the 250 kilowatt chargers serving 50 buses. It's roughly 95% complete. So if you dial back the clock a little bit, they wanted to do this, convert to all electric. They're, by the way, the first fleet in the U.S. to convert to all electric and with in-route wireless charging. And the biggest concern they had was range anxiety. So, again, love to tell stories. I was always curious to walk out and see how their product was working. I was out there one day at the, the initial transit hub, 
and there was a driver that stopped the bus and it was just parked. And I figured, well, okay, so let it go for 10 minutes. And at 15 minutes, I walked over and said, what's going on? And the driver said, I'm waiting for another bus to come. So that bus ran out of range. So what they were doing is they had to use two buses instead of one before they finished deploying their systems. So to me, it was probably the best highlight of how our systems truly did solve the range anxiety problem. So that's yeah. a word. <laughs> no better story than that, right? Talk about ble- being on the bleeding edge. That's, that's pretty. Uh, so, and, you know, you've also re- referred to overhead chargers as, as legacy um, uh, a few times. Have, are you implying that they are obsolete? Well, it's a good question. There's certainly some successful deployments out there, but, you know, if you talk to typically the maintenance people at some of these agencies and were deployed at one in Florida where the maintenance people came from a system on the East Coast where they had to maintain, I'll call it a catenary system with moving parts. And they said it was, it was just a, an extreme challenge to be able to keep those things running. So another bit of evidence saying that while it's functional, it can work, uh, but their concern is that the maintenance aspect of it is extremely high compared to wireless. So maybe not legacy, but I don't think it's going to be around for the future, maybe similar to the way mobile devices have taken over for landlines. And, and what are the maintenance needs of wireless, of your wireless system? Well, next to zero from our experience so far, certainly like <laughs> any company with a new product, you have some glitches up front, but at this point, I think we've, we've solved all of those. So really the maintenance is next to zero. The nice thing about it is there are no moving parts. So you really don't have anything to fail. And the experience so far shows that that's the, the biggest benefit is if you look at OPEX, there's a maintenance component to the TCO model. And the maintenance component is next to zero. I feel like with Alf's crystal ball and your no maintenance, there's definitely some cheating going on here. This is not <laughs> fair for, for anyone. <laughs> but uh, it's actually, you know, we, we moved to Florida from Europe a couple of years ago. And um, there are a bunch of nice charging stations from a top company here uh, that I was like, you know, thrilled. They're all, all over the place, um, easy to use, free. Uh, and um, it's been a little bit unfortunate to see that just in a couple of years, a lot of them have been worn out and one, one piece will break and then that charger is un- unusable. Um, and actually several of them now are unusable um, around this area. And this is a top company, makes great, great products compared to others, I would say. Uh, so there's this problem of just yeah, wear and tear is very hard and I guess with the heat component you mentioned, you know, heat is very, uh, very difficult to work with. We're in, I'm in Florida, of course, which is extra hot. Uh, but it has it has come to mind as like, you know, uh, a major issue, especially as we get to more, you know, mass market type buyers. Um, the wireless with no maintenance sounds really good right now. So can you speak a little bit about the consumer, sort of just the normal, you know, we talked about sort of fleet fleet applications, but can you speak a little bit about your thoughts, plans, vision for, you know, for serving the, the normal consumer EV driver market? Yeah, sure can. So we, to back up just a little bit, we started out in 
at the power levels we did because we thought the adoption would happen quickly. And indeed, it is true. So you see a lot of these bus and truck deployments that are happening ahead of light duty, at least for wireless. So it was really more a matter of targeting where the market was adopting sooner and where there was interest and the OEMs were more interested in moving quickly. But that being said, we've got a platform now that's commercial at 250 kilowatts. We have other business on yard trucks at the port of LA that will be at 125. And the technology is easier to scale down in power than it is up in power. So we're just waiting for the light duty market to take off and ready to serve that. Sounds great. Um, so uh, the, the, another topic that comes up with, um, with wireless charging, though, embedded in, in roads and streets and parking spaces uh, is the cost of putting them in, under the ground, in, in, in the road, in the parking spot, et cetera. Uh, can you speak a little bit about those costs and how you deal with that, that part of the challenge? Yeah, sure can. So what we do is we think about it going back again as a total cost of ownership thing, right? So there's all all flavors of that. There's the uh, CapEx and OpEx and such. And while it might nominally take a little bit more effort to get a pad in the roadway, it more than pays for itself in total cost of ownership, simply because once you set it in the ground, you can just forget about it. And we've got multiple instances where trucks, buses have been driving over the pads all day long, obviously heavy vehicles, and they've proven to be very robust. So once you do that for the first time with a small incremental cost, total cost of ownership, you see a payback in a couple of years over a 20 to 30 year lifetime. Sounds great. Yeah, we focus on total cost of ownership a lot for EVs in general. Um, so it's something our readers and listeners are quite used to thinking about, but um, never thought about it with the, in that regard. Uh, are there any other common questions that you tend to get about deploying wireless charging, especially at a large scale, um, that we haven't covered, haven't touched on? Uh, I think we've covered most of them. You know, the some of the concerns people get are reliability. Uh, and we're at the point now where, for example, we've got a system that's been running in the East Bay of San Francisco at the Wana Creek BART stations for over four years. And it runs at a greater than 50% duty cycle. It means at any given time when the buses are running, there's greater than 50% chance there's a bus on there charging watched it myself. You see one bus queue up behind the other one that's on the charger. So the other concern has been, is it reliable? Is it commercial? And I think that actually has proven it. So recently added another charger, four more buses, show the ability to move one charger to a new location and the great reliability continues. Yeah, that actually, I was going to play the role of somewhat uninformed um, interviewer for a moment uh, on that specific topic, which was, you know, if, if early on we'd start talking about this technology, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would say, yeah, but can you actually deploy it in a com commercial way, commercially viable way? We've already been talking about that a great deal, but can you give a kind of list of where you are, where your technology is in commercial use right now, uh, what different places and sectors? Sure. Yeah, our original start, as I mentioned, was in transit. So moving people, biggest one being ABTA, but also multiple other locations in the queue. 
and then recognize that success and said, okay, we have now a scalable modular platform. So let's start thinking about moving freight around containers, goods, all those. And the transit transit is just in the U S or also abroad. Uh, the commercial deployments that are known right now are in the U S but there are opportunities worldwide that we're focused on expect to be visible to the public pretty soon. So, and then beyond cool. that, focus trucks. So the range is yard trucks that we talked about, drayage trucks. And then the one we're doing up on the, up in the Pacific Northwest is going to be the first demonstration of a regional hall class eight truck using a megawatt charger. So it'll be doing over 400 miles a day. So continue to push the envelope as far as distance and range. And then beyond that, also looking at, as Alfred mentioned, some of the mining applications, right? They don't want to be generating any kind of spark underground where there are gases that could cause an explosion. So there's a lot of interest in mining applications. Um, also rail, both light, both light and heavy rail. Uh, one more question. You know, we have a, this week, uh, as we're recording this, we have a new administration that's just joined uh, Washington, D.C., Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration. Um, they have very big uh, infrastructure plans and very big clean tech plans, climate plans as well. Um, and of course, the intersection there is EV charging. Uh, how how does that impact um, your own plans and what you're sort of looking for, hoping for, and perhaps even you know um, trying to lobby for uh, with regards to U.S. policy and and, and this this topics. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to take a stab at that. So from the beginning, the company Wave has benefited from funds coming out of the FTA and also other organizations. So with the new administration taking over, we expect that funding to go up. We've seen some of the initial announcements. Uh, Also, looks like one of the the people we've been working with is going to be the the head of FTA. Oh, that's nice. Order of (laughs) transportation. So (laughs) who is that? A uh, person who came out of VTA cool. in California. So at least that's that's the rumor. I'm not sure the announcement's officially out, but I expect I expect funding to increase in public transportation. I think the piece that everybody's wrestling with is, of course, with COVID, fewer people have been out in general. So in some cases, ridership is down. But I think when it when that problem is uh, a thing of the past, hopefully, in maybe three to six months, I think there's going to be a big rise in public transportation. So I expect more funding to come out of the new administration for public transportation, both in traditional deployments and also in some of the let's call it novel methods of transportation, like smaller autonomous vehicles. So Alf, you know, we have a we have a new. Can you speak a little bit about? how ideonomics um, business plans in the U.S. Uh, and acquiring WAVE and, as well as other to- topics um, relates to the, you know, the, the new administration and your expectations or hopes or even things you're pushing for in, re- in regards to these topics? Yeah, thank you. I mean, look, I think the, um, the, the things that a company like us would like to see out of any administration um, is investment in the infrastructure, um, I think the Biden administration has made a lot of good noises. Um, I do hope the administration will follow through on those pre-election promises. It looks like the the narrative is continuing. Um, we would love to see that that type of thing happening. I think America. One of the things that you know we produce such amazing technology, but our infrastructure is creaking. And and I think uh, 
you know, EV gives an opportunity to to make some investments at government level in infrastructure so that we can get that public-private partnership that's required to really give us the, the tipping point so that we can reduce those carbon emissions in a meaningful way by taking those those gasoline and diesel vehicles off the road in the long term. And we, you know, the one thing it does for us as a, as a public company, it allows us to, to confidently make investments like acquiring Wave, and it also allows us to accelerate our investments in these types of areas. Because if the administration is going to be making an investment, um, the private sector can very quickly um, understand its path to profitability and revenue, which is ultimately what we put the capital in for. So, so we're, we're really pleased. We hope the, uh, the narrative continues from the Biden administration and they put their money where their mouth is because I think that'll be good for the planet as well as uh, our general infrastructure here in the US. Yeah, and you make a good and interesting point again about um, you, know, you, you spend a lot of time in China and you see very much very much more modern um, infrastructure and high-tech infrastructure, I'm sure. Uh, can Is there anything specific like from what you see over there a lot that you would be pushing for or hoping for here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a, it's a different it's a different political framework over in China, as you know. Um, being um, authoritarian and autocratic can allow you to get things done uh, much faster. Uh, we do have a you know large lobby interests that that don't sue DB right now, particularly oil and gas. It's trying to figure out its future energy. Um, you know those types of things uh, don't play out in in China. The the large petroleum distributors have been told to to play nice in the sandbox with the with the charging companies and to find a uh, you know to find a quick path to migrating their energy distribution away from fossil fuels and, and into clean clean energy so um, that'll take a little more time here in the US so I would love to see that but I think ultimately um, you know we, we saw several years ago BP Shell Exxon they've all they've all acquired grid technology companies they 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 know where their future is so I think like the traditional automakers like Ford, GM, others that are just starting to come to market with strong products. I think they've been sitting and waiting for that, uh, the industry to move from nascent. I think China's moved it from nascent. And, you know, we all bash China a lot, but I think the EV innovation and the drive for EV has come out of that. That country's massive investments in EV and clean tech infrastructure. And I think we have an opportunity here to, to you know, um, not necessarily be the leader, but quickly catch up. Because typically most people look to the U.S. to lead on innovation. And in this particular instance, um, you know, China's, China's way ahead. Um, that's, that's good for us because that means we can place our bets much more confidently with right. the private partnerships we do and focus just on what we know is tried and trusted rather than, you know, trying to, you know, trying to blaze a trail, which is typically what people expect American private capital to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me too, the choice of Pete Buttigieg for head of department of transportation, because he's, he's quite young and creatively minded, very um, looks, looks for uh, new ways of saying things, new ways of doing things. Um, and I was also mayor of a small city. So he understands the mechanics of, you know, operating, uh, operating things at a city level. Uh, so it's, I'm quite curious to see, he's already got some, um, good comments about autonomous vehicles out there. Uh, but it, it looks like they will be more future minded, you know, than historic, historically the department of transportation, you know, it's, um, I, I got a master's degree in city and regional planning, so I, I, I'll, I'll hold my tongue, but it's not always the fastest, most innovative, um, 
department. So, uh, and any final thoughts, I guess on, you know, any specific policies or, um, any specific, uh, yeah, funding that you guys are thinking about Alf, Mike, either of you, um, in regard to wave or anything else in the broader EV or clean tech ecosystem. Yeah, we've made some recent hires that are coming from the other side of the table, so to speak, that have been working with the major metro areas. Um, who are looking at their green initiatives, their EV initiatives, their clean clean emission initiatives. So we've started to, in that you know, employ a thief to catch a thief type of thing. We brought some of their thinking over. Um, they have frustrations, so there's a big incentive for them to jump into the private sector. Um, what I'd love to see, as well as the investment in the in the deployment of the infrastructure, is you know, what underlies that, which is the creaking electrical grid infrastructure in the US. Right now, that's going to be a, an impediment to, to deploying it. Um, Mike can speak a little more about this because it's more his forte than mine. But um, there is, there's a real issue that there isn't enough juice to power the grid right now for what uh, EV will need to take out of our, our uh, electricity networks. And, and with public utilities being the way they are with tenured, you know, non-tenured CEOs who are always looking at the public markets and, and how to keep the shareholders happy. The, the infrastructure investment uh, doesn't suit them from their balance sheet. So we're looking strongly to government to, to put the funds available to get our utilities up to spec. Mike, you have any thoughts there? Yeah, so I think big picture, there, there are people out there that have done studies looking at what it takes to do a complete conversion to EV throughout the world. And yes, I think one of the biggest constraints is the capacity in the grid for sure. In addition to that, Zach, before he asked about what are some of the concerns that we've we've overcome in talking to some of the customers, and you're probably aware many of the utilities have come up with these creative programs to offset peak demand charges. So I think it's going to take participation on their part to assure the operators that, yes, once I convert to this, I'm not going to see an increase in my fuel as in the form of electricity costs. The other big thing I think this is going to take is the addition of stationary storage to the grid to be able to shave off those peaks. And there are calculations out there. There are nonprofits that have done it. I think it's really going to come down to more of a public-private partnership thing to enable it and make it a reality so everybody feels comfortable that fuel costs in the term of electricity will stay stable. Yeah, and uh, just you know, going back to the the planning aspect of things and Department of Transportation aspect, um, I should say too. You know, it's not just it's not that people in the industry are necessarily not innovative or creative. Uh, it's just that things move very slowly, um, especially when, when they're bureaucratic as well. But but just you know, infrastructure is a long, slow process. It requires a lot of planning. Uh, changing cities takes a lot of time. Uh, so it's just, it's a slow process in general. A lot of things to gum up the works. Um, but one positive side of it is that there's a very heavy focus on long-term thinking and long-term planning in these fields, uh, you know, much more so than in, in the business sector in general and a lot of sectors. There's often, you know, 20 years sort of vision. Um, you know, when we look back five to eight years, uh, wireless EV charging was in a very different place and the, the discussion around it, I think, was a very different place than it is today. Looking forward 10 to 20 years, you know, you have your vision how 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 do you think you and, and others should be best you know sort of in a in a short way sorry uh best sort of uh thinking about where we should be headed and thinking about you know planning for 10 years out not one year out 
Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take the question first. Um, maybe Mike can follow up. You know, for me, I, I think it, it, it's a very interesting one. I think, like you said, it's going to have to be a public-private kind of marriage. Um, I think solar gives us a lot of flexibility in the near term. It's now the cheapest form of electricity generated. Um, the photovoltaic sector in particular has got extremely efficient, extremely low cost as well. I think there's a play here um, for solar to help us get there faster. I think it's much, much uh, faster and easier to deploy. Um, people think it has to just be in sunny places. Of course, it's, it's optimized if it's in you know, uh, places that get sun from morning, morning through to night. Um, but it works in overcast areas as well. And I think uh, solar could be the, the faster way to beef up the, the grid's capabilities in the short term uh, that doesn't necessarily have the cost impact of, of, uh, of you know, beefing up the grid in other ways. That's a great point. I was I was actually thinking more of the EV charge. Sorry, I didn't wasn't explicit about the EV charging side of things and the wireless charging. Uh, obviously, there's a huge initiative to put a lot of EV charging stations in. Um, what's your kind of elevator pitch to anyone in, in, in you know from a from a consumer to a head of department of transportation or FTA or FERC about you know how we should be thinking about planning EV charging. Uh, not just based on today's technology, but based on, you know, a market of 50% market share, 70% market share, and, you know, 2030 charging tech. Well, yeah, I'd love to see them be aggressive. The pitch would be start to tax um, fossil fuels heavier to pay for that uh, infrastructure cost. Um, you know, I think we're, we're trying to find innovative ways for the people who are, you know, buying our systems and deploying them to work with kind of uh, professional debt-based financiers to move it from a, a CapEx to an OpEx play, maybe start to provide charging as a service. I think that's a really important play. Uh, we're putting together some programs around that now. Mike and I are spending a good amount of time brainstorming those types of things and bringing in the right kind of capital to, to make that a reality. I think the, the total cost of ownership is so significantly in favor of moving over to electricity versus diesel. Um, maybe we can shave some of that total cost of ownership gain, put that into the loaded front end of OPEX instead of CAPEX and, uh, and have a different model for people. Yeah, and I would, I would echo a little bit of what Al said. So I think really it's lowering the barrier to entry, right? So we talked a lot about fleets and everybody recognizes that they want to get into this for various reasons. They understand the TCO model and such, but many of them can't just come up with the capital to be able to do it. So as Alf said, I think some will want us to come in and do the, the whole system from, from start to finish, charging as a service, transportation as a service. And then part B for me is my background's engineering. So I think of everything as a system level optimization. So as Alf was talking about, I think, you know, ultimately we want to get electrons into a battery to be able to move things around and people. So we need to think about it from the standpoint of PV, stationary storage, what we can pull off of the grid, how much we should carry around on the vehicle, how much power we should put into the vehicle at which locations, and think about it as a, as a kind of system level or global optimization problem and then look at it from the top down. Uh, well, thank you guys very much. It was a fascinating discussion. Um, it would be fun. Get gets. It would be fun at some point to get a roundtable of tech leaders like you around and sort of uh, just have a whole session of mapping out your vision for 2030 or 2040, uh, what it what it all looks like. But um, fun stuff to end on. And thank you very much for for informing us about 
um, wireless EV charging today and uh, answering our questions. Any final thoughts from either of you? I would say that uh, for all the reasons we mentioned today, um, I would encourage anybody at a municipal or government level to consider wireless over cable, whether it's health and safety, whether it's efficiency for charging. Um, I just think where it's all, you know, the hope for autonomous vehicles in the future, um, I don't think cable and connectivity is helpful. There's a reason our phones are not like they, they were in the sitcom Roseanne, right, with a 30-foot cord on them. Mm-hmm. Um, all other aspects of our power needs and, and convenience should be the same. Yeah, going back to the original thought we mentioned, you've heard a lot of people talk about the whole uh, ACES acronym. So in the future, everything's going to be autonomous, connected, electrified, and shared. So I think that's really where everything is going. If we think about it from that standpoint, fast forward 10, 20 years, and then work backwards, we'll come up with a solution. So it's time to move. It works. Thank you both. Um, And listeners, uh, thank you for, for listening and check in next time to get your electric fix. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.